Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Yeah, you know, that was certainly, um, you know, out of my control, out of my hands, and and that's uh, the business part of it. So I understand that, and, um, you know, my job is to to prepare to play as well as I can, um, help the team win games, and, and that's certainly what I'm focused on. Was it disappointing that they didn't pick it up? Uh, you know, it just, just uh, kind of is what it is, and, um, you know, you're focused on preparing to, to play as well as you can, and, and uh, you know, that's my, that's my goal. That's what my focus is on. That's Daniel Jones, the quarterback of the New York Giants, at least for 2022. 2023, we don't know. The Giants made a strategic decision. They made a bet. They made a bet. I interviewed Joe Shane, the GM of the Giants, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, he didn't quite agree with my characterization that they're basically betting against Daniel Jones, but I kind of think they are. What they're saying is we're more comfortable assuming the risk that Daniel Jones plays so well this year that we're going to owe him franchise tag money or a new contract based on franchise tag money, which could be $33, $34 million next year, versus giving him $22 million guaranteed right now under the assumption that we're going to be happy to pay him $22 million guaranteed in 2023. They are hedging the bet. They are placing the chip on the Daniel Jones isn't going to justify $22 million. As of right now, we think he won't be worth it, so we're not making that commitment. And we'll, we'll take our chances that he ends up playing so well that we're backed into a corner financially, and we'll call it a good problem to have. That was the phrase that Joe Shane used, good problem to have if he plays so well that they find themselves having to tag him, looking at $10, $11, or $12 million, Peter, in a financial difference if they end up deciding to use that tag. Reminds me a little bit of what uh, <clears throat> Brian Gutekunst, the Green Bay Packers general manager, said to me the weekend that they drafted Jordan Love. And that was, I said, what happens if Aaron Rodgers just plays great and Jordan Love never sees the field? And he said, hey, if he plays well enough so that uh, he stays our quarterback for the next four or five years, great. Be a great problem to have. And it's exactly the same way here. You know, Joe Shane, John Mara, Brian Dable would have been committing football idiocy, in my opinion, to guarantee Daniel Jones $22.3 million in 2023. Mike, you don't guarantee all that money to a player who clearly you have questions about after in his first 38 games... He's thrown 29 interceptions and fumbled 36 times. I mean, it's just, it's not smart. I think they're doing this exactly the right way. They're asking Daniel Jones, sing for your supper. That's what they're saying. And, you know, look, if it works, and if Daniel Jones becomes their long-term quarterback, 
then the Giants are going to look back at this at whatever it's going to cost them, 11 million, whatever it is, for this one year. They're going to look back at it and they're going to say, you know, we did what we had to do and it is a infinitesimal price to pay for the guy who's going to be our quarterback going into the future. And, and again, kudos to the folks who put the headlines on the graphics. My kind of snarky, the guy known as Danny Dimes, referred to as Danny Pennies, based upon his performance with the Giants. Uh, that, that, is, that is snarky, but I approve it completely. And, you know, the reality, Peter, and, and this is where I have a hard time reconciling the Giants' comments with their, with their actions. When Shane was introduced as the GM, John Mara found his way to a microphone in the scrum after the press conference and said all these glowing things about Daniel Jones. Brian Dayball, all sorts of glowing things about Daniel Jones. John Mara at the league meetings. Hey, you either have a quarterback here or you don't, and we think we have a pretty good one. What's $22 million if you think you have a pretty good quarterback? The market's north of 50 now. What, what $22 million? But what if you decide after this year? But what if he has? But what if he has a lousy year, and you have the third pick in the draft next year, and you're going to take a quarterback, and you're stuck exactly the same way the Carolina Panthers are stuck with Sam Darnold. You just don't do it. Forget what people say. What people say is malarkey. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can you can you can you can praise a guy all you want. The fact is, your decision speaks volumes. You don't believe in Daniel Jones right now, but you're giving him an opportunity to win the job long term this year. Forget all the praise they're lavishing on him. You know, all that matters is how he plays. One thing that we can agree on completely, totally, unconditionally, and unequivocally is there's an overabundance of BS. They can say we have no intention to trade Russell Wilson, and then they trade Russell Wilson. They can say all of these great things about Daniel Jones, and then they don't do the thing that would back up all of the superlatives heaped upon Daniel Jones, which is extend his contract at $22 million. And you're right. Cautionary tale. Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. The Browns and the Panthers both stuck with guys who have equal salaries of $18.8 million fully guaranteed. First and third picks, respectively, Mayfield and Darnold in the 2018 draft. That's what they get in their fifth-year option. And the Browns and the Panthers surely wish in hindsight they hadn't exercised those options. The Bears didn't exercise the fifth-year option on Mitchell Trubisky, and they were glad they didn't. So, again, if he plays so well this year that they have themselves a franchise quarterback, that he finally has shown them something, if he shows them something enough times that they say, man, he is something, just like Lloyd Braun. That Lloyd Braun is something. That Daniel Jones is oh, something. something. They'll, they'll, they'll happily pay him. They'll happily pay him. And they won't regret the fact that they could have had him for $22 million, even if they have to pay him $34 million under the franchise tag. Here's Brian Dayball, coach of the Giants, from this week on how he wants to see Daniel Jones play in 2022. We want to make sure we protect the ball. Um, but, again, you can't go out there and, and play you know, afraid. Um, be smart, not reckless, if you will. If he's got the right, you know, if he's got a shot on the right read, let it go. You know, there's, there's going to be things that happen in every game. Uh, the defense is going to make a good play. There might be a tip ball. Uh, we're going to have to do a good job of taking care of the football, but I want him to turn it loose. Here's another reason to turn it loose. One of the biggest flaws in Daniel Jones' game, Peter, has been he holds on to the ball too long. That clock in his head does not go off. The alarm does not go off. That's why he's had so many fumbles. You've seen him get hit in the pocket while he's holding the football. The ball comes out. You got to get rid of it. You got to accelerate that decision-making process. And year four, look, I don't know what is a fair number of years before we decide pass or fail on a young quarterback. I've said before, and I said recently, if the standard that applies to NFL quarterbacks now had applied to Terry Bradshaw. He'd have been back in Shreveport pumping gas before he ever threw the pass that became the Immaculate Reception. We may have said that last Friday for all I can remember. But four years in today's NFL, if you don't figure it out by year four as a quarterback, you're done. So this is the year. And it's unfortunate for Jones that it's his first year with Dayball. And you get this revolving door of coaches and offensive coordinators. But 
at some point, you just got to rise above it and get it done. And that's what they're going to expect him to do. And Dayball, who showed that he could get a lot out of Josh Allen, is going to try to get a lot out of Daniel Jones. The best thing that happened to Daniel Jones is John Mara said to Joe Shane, basically, you pick a coach. And Mara and Steve Tisch had to agree, obviously. But Joe Shane picked this coach. And so now, you know, there are some adults in the room. Joe Shane has made some replacements on his scouting staff. You know, now you're going to have someone else running the franchise other than a guy who has been ensconced in giantdom, which, you know, other than the fact that, you know, Jerry Reese had two marvelous years in his tenure. Uh, you know, the, the Giants, since the departure of Ernie Accorsi, uh, have not been cloaked in greatness. So to me, I look at what's happening right now is, you know, if you're Daniel Jones, the unfortunate thing is this could be the first and only year you get under people who really know what they're doing. And, and, and so unfortunately for him, he might be one and done. But I do think that he has the best chance that he's had right now with who they drafted and who is coaching and who is calling the plays, uh, he's got his best chance to succeed since he's been there. And look, I'll just I'll say one other thing. <clears throat> the Giants last year paid Kenny Galladay a ransom when they did not need to do that, period. And that is the sins. That's on the sins of the previous general manager, uh, Dave Gettleman. They also drafted kind of an immature and irresponsible receiver in Kadarius Toney. And I don't care what they say I, I, about, oh, Kadarius is part of our future. And yeah, he's good. And he's back practicing with us and everything. I don't know. I just see them at some point, probably at the end of the year, moving on from Kadarius Toney. I, I, I don't, he hasn't shown me any signs so far that, He is, quote, with the program, end quote. But we'll see. He's got this year to either show it or not show it. But those two guys are going to be really, really important to what Daniel Jones does this year. They need those two guys, and they're lucky now that they appear to have two young, good bookend tackles to protect Daniel Jones. So it's a crucial year for him but I think it's easily the best chance he's had in his four years with the Giants. And you throw in Saquon Barkley, who has not been healthy since he was the pick between Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold in 2018. He had over 2,000 yards from scrimmage as a rookie. He's had injuries, whether it's ankle, torn ACL. He hasn't been the same guy. This is his chance in his fifth year where they picked up the option and they're paying him more than $7 million. And there was some possibility of a trade but at the end of the day who's going to pay him seven million dollars when you consider the issues he's had physically in a position that is very physically demanding when there are so many young running backs out there who don't have that injury history so if Barkley can have a big year if the offensive line can get it done if the defense is better there's a lot of ifs in that but the Giants will find out one way or the other whether or not Daniel Jones is their guy for 2023 and if they have to pay him more than 22 million significantly more than 22 million because he's had a great year and they've decided he's the guy then they're willing to do it because it will mean that they have their quarterback situation finally solved otherwise all bets are off and they're going to be one of those teams that's looking to free agency trades in the draft in 23 as they try to improve the team the Bengals fell into the perfect spot to improve their team in a dramatic way with the acquisition of Joe Burrow, the first pick in the 2020 draft. He has been the real deal. He had some comments earlier this week on Deshaun Watson going to the Browns and Baker Mayfield still being there. Here's what Burrow had to say about that situation. I got to ask you, like, what are your thoughts on the Baker situation? That's a tough situation. You know, he was hurt, hurt all last year. And I mean, every time we play him, he balls. Yeah. He, first time we played him, Thursday night, week two of my rookie year, that was, uh, we lost like 30 to 34 or something. He balled. 
And then the next time we play him, I throw for 400 yards, and he goes like 25 of 28 with five touchdowns, goes on a two-minute drive, touchdown, won the game. I haven't beat the Browns yet. He beat us both times this year. I guess I didn't play a second game because we had it all, all locked up, but you know, the first one he balled. Why do you think his situation is so like, up in the air? You know, I think when you have a guy like Deshaun, you know, you got to take a chance at that because yeah. he's such a great player. But you know, Baker will land on his feet. He's a really good player. I hope I'm still alive when Joe Burrow retires from the NFL and Fox pays him $750 million for 10 years to call games as the number one analyst because I can already see, you know, Burrow has a way, Peter, of talking very bluntly and candidly in a way that that isn't in any way offensive or unlikable. He just kind of says what he thinks and... He just puts it out there. And there's something refreshing about the way that he does it. But, you know, he, as he's saying it, and he and this isn't just the comments about Mayfield. I, I've noticed this from him over his first two years in the NFL. He will say things that are real and that are meaningful and that aren't just cookie-cutter bull crap. Let me just get through this question so I can get to the next one, so I can get through this interview and be done with it. I feel like he really tries to say things. And he does it in a way that's very engaging and very likable. And uh, I think he's got a hell of a future in media whenever he's done playing. Yes, but, and I'll give you a but on this. Um, I don't sense that Joe Burrow, I, I remember I used to spend some time with Brett Favre away from football. And I remember one time, he had the TV on in his house, and it was National Geographic. And I forget, it was either Thursday night, but there was, a, there was football on TV. I said, the game's not on? And he goes, I don't watch football. You know, that's my job. I, I, I need to get away from football. I, you know. And I would be surprised if Joe Burrow has a 1 o'clock game in Cincinnati, and he goes home... And, you know, the, the, the Sunday night football game is Pittsburgh and Baltimore. I would be very surprised either if at his home with a few people over in the TV on or out at a restaurant with TVs on or whatever, I'd be very surprised if he watched Pittsburgh and Baltimore on TV. And I'm not saying he doesn't like football. I think he does like football. But... A lot of the people who became really good at talking about football soak in football all the time. Tony Romo was an absolute total football head. Uh, Kurt Warner's a football head. And, and, you know, they watch football all the time. Chris Collinsworth is a football and tape head. And I wonder if at some point in his life, and maybe he will, because it's 20 years away or 18 years away, will Joe Burrow want to be that guy who, when he wakes up on Tuesday morning in his house in Cincinnati or wherever he lives, will he want to sit down there for eight hours and watch tape of the the two teams he's going to have on TV that week? And again... I'm not saying he doesn't study the game. I think he does study the game, but that's his job. The question is, will he love it enough to want to be really great at it one day down the road? We would have had that same question about Tom Brady every year of his career until he took a job with Fox doing the games uh, for 10 years once he's done playing in the NFL. So we'll see how it goes. I just think that Burrow, what he says, how he says it is very candid. It's very refreshing. I like that attitude. And he's telling the truth about Baker Mayfield. Six and one is Mayfield against the Bengals and three and oh head to head against Joe Burrow. It's easy to forget that Mayfield struggled for most of last year for one very important reason. And it's his own fault. 
He suffered an injury week two after he threw an interception and decided he was going to go make the tackle. I say this all the time. Do not put yourself in that position. The team needs you more next week and the week after and the week after that than they need you to go try to make that tackle after a turnover. Keep yourself healthy. No unnecessary contact. And no, you know, basic Newtonian physics where you've got one object moving very rapidly this way, the other object moves rapidly the other way. You've got heightened forces when you collide. You don't want to do that as a quarterback. So if he doesn't have that injury last year, who knows? what we see from from Baker Mayfield is just unfortunate. And I, I just, for his sake, I, I, I would like this to get resolved so he can begin the process of getting himself ready to be someone's quarterback. It's just unfortunate that we're in this posture. Um, but I agree with what Burrow said. I think, I think Mayfield I don't know if he's going to be player. anybody's quarterback. The question, I think the question is, whose backup quarterback is he going to be? I, I mean, at least at the start of the year. You know, if he was going to be somebody's quarterback, <clears throat> he would have been signed by May 20th. That's all I can say. And and I'm yep. not saying that's the right decision by Carolina or Seattle or, or whoever it is, but that's just the way it is. And look, Mike, <clears throat> I would maintain this. If I were Baker Mayfield, I'd want to be, obviously, I'd want to be a free agent. But if I was a free agent, I wouldn't be signing right now. I wouldn't, I, I would not, I would not sign with anyone I'd, I'd wait until uh, either somebody got hurt or Labor Day weekend. And if somebody then wanted me at minimum salary or whatever as a number three quarterback for the time being, I'd go. But there's no sense right now in going to a place that doesn't want him. And right now, I think the only place that might want him is Carolina. But the fact is... They have shown such, you know, passivity uh, toward Baker Mayfield that how could he look at that and say, boy, I'd have a great chance to play if I went to Carolina. I just, I don't see it. This issue came up this week. I was on with Rich Eisen and both with Dan Patrick shows that follow us here on Peacock. They, They both believe, and I agree, that the Browns need to really explore the possibility of getting Mayfield back in the fall. It's not going to be easy. And Dan thinks they should do it. Rich believes that Humpty Dumpty cannot be put back together. That relationship is fractured beyond repair. And I tend to agree more with that. But I think the Browns should be trying to get Baker Mayfield back in the fold because they may need him. We don't know how long Deshaun Watson's going to miss, if at all, this year. That's a different topic. And maybe it'll come to a head next week. I'm still penciling it in as next Friday, Memorial Day weekend, bad news dump. The NFL proposes a suspension of Deshaun Watson and the disciplinary process moves forward. They may need him for all or most of the 2022 season. You're already paying him $18.8 million. And I, if I'm Baker Mayfield, Peter, I know we got to go to break. But if I'm Baker Mayfield and I look at Seattle, Carolina, or Cleveland as my options, and I want to set myself up, to become a free agent and get a big contract next year. Cleveland is the no-brainer, isn't it? Probably, but suppose and you raise this in a in a in a piece that you did at Pro Football Talk, which I think is absolutely totally on the table. And that is that there's a possibility. I definitely don't think it's 50-50 or better. But there is a possibility that the NFL will allow the legal system to run its course before it does anything in a disciplinary way with Deshaun Watson. And could you imagine the quarterback room with Deshaun Watson, Baker Mayfield, and Jacoby Brissett? First of all, Jacoby Brissett will feel like he got stabbed in the back. He went there to be a backup quarterback and to play if there was going to be a suspension uh, of Deshaun Watson. And if that happened, you know, they literally might have to release Jacoby Brissett. I, I mean, it's just all, it's so, it's so problematic right now that to me, if I were the Browns, I, I, I don't think I could do anything until I, if, if you were thinking about bringing him back, I don't think you could do anything 
unless you knew what the NFL was going to do in a disciplinary way. All the more reason for the NFL to make a decision. They've had plenty of time. They've had full access to the individuals who will talk to them. Deshaun Watson has no option. He has to talk to them. The time is now. The clock has been ticking, and the Browns need to know. And this ties back to what we spent the first hour of the program talking about, the NCAA getting the chaos it deserves. You could argue the Browns are getting the chaos they deserve by doing the deal with Deshaun Watson, doing the trade, the $230 million fully guaranteed while you still have Baker Mayfield, and you don't know what's going on. Well, you only have yourself to blame for not knowing what's going on as all of this begins to collide, and you have to contemplate life with Deshaun Watson, maybe without him, life with Baker Mayfield, maybe without him. It's a big mess, and the Browns only have themselves to blame. Let's take a break. When we return, Buffalo Bills stepping up after tragedy struck in the east side of Buffalo community. More on that when PFT Live returns right after this. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Tragedy struck on Saturday in Buffalo with the racially motivated killing of 10 individuals. The Buffalo Bills came out in force on Wednesday to assist with financial support and just physical presence to be there sharing and grieving and supporting their community members. Here's Josh Allen from Wednesday talking about why he and his teammates were there to help their neighbors. Yeah, choose love. I think that's just it's it's a motto that I think maybe that we should start adopting as a as a country, Um, you know, treating those, you know, it's the golden rule, treating those as you'd want to be treated. And um, again, what happened here was it's disgusting, despicable. And there's so many different words you can use and none of them are nice. And um, we're we're just we're again, we're here to, to brighten people's days and, and try to help move past this and uh, share the grief with our community and uh, let them know that, you know, we care and um, we want to hold that with them. Stop hate and racism, choose love. Those are the mottos you will see at the Bills social media account and at their website. And, you know, Peter, I, I we haven't talked about this. I've written a couple of things about it this week. I... I and what do you say when things like this happen? Because they, they just keep happening. And I've said this before when uh, when we when we had our radio hour, and I think it was after the the incident in Las Vegas a few years ago, when the madman had the the room above the the music festival and killed forty or fifty people. You just I, I hate to resign myself to it, but you basically have to accept the fact that in our country, in our shared American experience, one of the risks you assume when you leave the house is that you're going to be gunned down somewhere in a public place, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's a Walmart, whether it's a concert, whether you just happen to be walking down the street. It's just one of the risks you assume, and you never know when it's going to happen. And it's not like it's a gigantic risk, but it's still a risk. It's still one of the things. And it's just a reality. If nothing's ever going to change, and we've and, and it sucks that we've become numb to this because we know nothing's going to change. If it didn't change after Sandy Hook, it's not going to change. It's just not going to change. If it doesn't change when little kids get shot and killed in school, it's not going to change. And uh, we're just going to have to – we're going to have to deal with it. And when it happens, it's good to see that a team like the Buffalo Bills – showing real support for the people who have to pick up the pieces and try to move on with their lives. There are real needs. There are real issues. There are real hurdles to overcome as the community tries to to come back together and move on. And it's great that the Bills are giving money and time to support those who need it in the aftermath of the latest gun-related tragedy. 
I think one of the great things that NFL teams do is at times like this, uh, they're actually there. They show up. The Buffalo Bills showed up. And the Buffalo Bills said to the community, uh, we're grieving with you. We're sorry. Uh, we love you. And look, you know, we, we probably laugh sometimes about, you know, when we see people at Bills games in drunken revelry, jumping on card tables and folding tables and, and all that, and everybody gets a chuckle out of it or whatever. And people like me look at it and say, what in the world is going on? But what, what happens is that there, I, I can't think of a team and a region that is more tightly wound together than Buffalo and the Buffalo Bills. And I thought what happened the other day was perfect because it said that it wasn't that they were just going to go out. They actually spent time, talked to people, hugged people. And, uh, and players came from far away too. Uh, you know, Stefan Diggs, I, I heard, was, was out of town, but he flew back in so that he can go. Uh, and be on this trip with his uh, with his brethren on the team. So I I just applaud the Bills. I think what they did was absolutely tremendous. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Nothing is going to change. So if nothing is going to change, then you've got to do the best you can in the horrendous situation you have in this country about gun violence. If it's not going to change, you just have to be there when a terrible thing happens in your community. You've got to be there, and that's exactly what the Bills did. For more thoughts on the situation involving gun violence and the motivations for the application of that violence and maybe some of the voices out there that are providing direct or indirect encouragement of that kind of behavior, especially when it's racially motivated. There are items at PFT. We're not going to get into that now, but I've said my piece in a couple of different pieces at PFT, and we encourage you to check them out if you have not already. Let's go ahead and take a break. Is all press good press, no matter how bad it may be. Jerry Jones told Peter King recently that it is. We'll break that down next here on this Friday edition of Pro Football Talk Live. I grew up scared to death of quicksand. You're always hearing about getting caught in quicksand and just sinking into the bowels of the earth. Has anybody ever seen quicksand anywhere? Where is there quicksand? I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't, it's, I, it wasn't a bit. It wasn't a bit. I didn't write it. It's not open mic night. I, I still, Peter, we had that. We were, you were on, we were on the show. We are, I am still looking for quicksand. The only place where I know that quicksand existed was Gilligan's Island. Other than that, I have no idea where any quicksand ever was, but we were raised to be fearful of sinking into the bowels of the earth forevermore to disappear in a vat of quicksand that we just happened to trip across in the woods somewhere. Where are the La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles? And is it possible that if you accidentally walked into the La Brea tar pits, would you suddenly become submerged in a tar pit and be unable to get out? There's your follow-up question. I was fascinated when I was a kid by the concept and the name La Brea Tar Pits. And yeah, they, yeah, I, I'm not going to go down this road because we're going to hear the piano music. But let me just say it. There, I, I, you know, every kid goes through that dinosaur phase. When you're, and I, when I was a kid, you could buy these dinosaur models that you would kind of make and there was there was one that was the La Brea tar pits where there was a mastodon that was like struggling to not disappear forever into the black hole literally of the La Brea tar pits so I was always fascinated by the name and the reality of the La Brea tar pits all right um can't, the NFL can can't we a- please play the piano music with old man Florio no can't no, we, we please no. do that no we're, we're, the moment is passed 
The moment has passed. Peter spoke with old man Jerry Jones. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the tar pit that is the bad news cycle that hovers around the NFL. I thought, Peter, first of all, your Football Morning in America column is must-read every week. I thought it was particularly spectacular this week, especially because it had the quotes from Jerry Jones. He'll never sell the team. The team's worth 10 up, $10 billion or more. I think if it was for sale, he'd get a lot more than $10 billion if he ever was willing to sell it. But he also told you the story about his meeting with executives from Fox, where at the time there were a lot of negative headlines about the Cowboys. Michael Irvin was in the headlines. People were saying the owner's an outlaw. So that day I told the Fox executives, I'm tightening the lid on this franchise. We're going to get control of this team. And David Hill from Fox jumped up and said, no, do not touch my boys. They are television gold. Don't even think about it. And, and that led to the observation by Jones that all of the soap operas, the issues, the drama, everything related to the NFL is good for business. Now, the water's edge for Jerry Jones quite possibly is the national anthem controversy. I think he wanted that to go away, but everything else is fair game. No news is bad news as long as they are talking about the NFL, the Cowboys, Jerry Jones, whoever. They love it. He loves it. Others may disagree. He loves it. And that's why I said earlier he must be coming up with a way to get Mike McCarthy to to pick a public fight with Ron Rivera or Brian Dayball or Nick Sirianni or Matt LaFleur or some other rival coach in the NFC because that kind of stuff is good for business. Look, this was, uh, this was whatever, five or six words that nobody really picked up on from my column about Jerry Jones the other day. But – this and and this is really it dovetails on what you're saying. But Jerry Jones said that one of the great things about football is, and I quote, "We always got something going." End quote. And so that is a part of the reason why the Dallas Cowboys right now, per Forbes magazine, are valued at six point five million dollars. Why Mark Gannis, the guy who knows more about the NFL and the ownership and also the people out there who might try to buy NFL franchises, why he believes the Cowboys tomorrow could be sold for 8 or $8.5 billion, and why Jerry Jones believes that his franchise is worth more than $10 billion. And this, we can think of 100 reasons about why the NFL is so popular right now. But Mike, I'll just give you one of them, okay? And I talked to somebody in the hierarchy of the NFL who agreed with me that this illustrates absolutely perfectly about why the value of these franchises is just skyrocketing. Remember how the NFL was talking about uh, Black, a game on Black Friday? And I wrote that the NFL believed that if there was a game on Black Friday, that they could get from Amazon between 70 and $100 million for it. And you say, well, just an okay game in the middle of the afternoon on, on Black Friday, is it really worth all that much money? Well, to Amazon Prime, of course it is. The day after Thanksgiving is Amazon Prime Super Bowl. That's their biggest day. So the NFL found somebody who would pay for, and I don't know, just let's make something up. You know, Chicago uh, against the Giants, you know, on the day after Thanksgiving, whatever it was, just a game, okay? They could, they could get a huge amount of money. And you would say 70 or 100 million, all these million dollar figures get thrown around. So what do they mean? Well, that's basically in that range is what, uh, ESPN and NBC paid to do a wild card game. So they will pay for a nondescript game in the middle of the shopping season in November. A nondescript game. What a playoff game goes for in January. And it's just, it is why the NFL right now has the golden touch. It may go away someday. It may go the way of Mark Cuban, you know, pigs get slaughtered, hogs get whatever they get, whatever it is. But the point is, 
right now the NFL is pushing all the right buttons, and that is why the Denver Broncos will be worth twice as much more than what the last franchise sold for four and a half years ago. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered is what Cuban said eight, nine years ago. And, and you're right, that day may come. And, you know, Peter, the one thing that keeps coming back to mind, and I've spoken to people very high up with NFL teams about this dynamic, as the values go up and up and up, you better have great estate planning. You better have management of the equity of the team because when the patriarch or the matriarch check out for good and Uncle Sam comes around looking for his cut of the estate, you may have to sell the team because you got to pay 40%. You got to pay 40% of the value of that team, even if you're not going to sell it. The Joneses are going to have to come up with $4 billion to give to the federal government as a state tax, depending upon how they've managed it. It may be that Jerry Jones has no equity at this point. He may have transferred all the equity over the years to children and grandchildren. That's the kind of thing you have to do to avoid getting yourself in a predicament like Jack Kent Cook's family was, like Joe Robbie's family was, where they had to sell because they couldn't pay the estate tax without selling. And I know this isn't about the the Raiders, it's about the Cowboys, but there are people who wonder, and we hear all the stories about the financial disorder as the New York Times characterized it with the Raiders. Peter, there are people who wonder what's going to happen when the widow of Al Davis passes. Can Mark Davis pull it off without having to sell the team? Nobody knows Great what question. kind of estate planning he has in place, but he may just have to cash out at that point like the Cook heirs and the Robbie heirs had to do. Yeah, and, you know, look, Mike, I think, for fans, this really doesn't register. It really doesn't matter uh, to them, and probably it shouldn't matter. It should. Oh, it I'm should. Not that the owner of the team. The owner of the but, the owner of the team. Who the owner of the team is? Whether or not the person is Dan Snyder or or Robert Kraft, you damn you're damn right. It matters. The only problem is you don't know. It's like drafting a player. You don't know if that owner is going to become. Good. That's my I, point. Can't, but it definitely matters. That's the problem. You can't tell. But but I would I would only I'd only make this point about it that you know I think when you look at the ownership of a team the only thing you should really want to know I mean and this is all I would want to know of my owner I want to know are you going to spend to the cap every year and are you going to embarrass our franchise are you going to embarrass our city? Are you going to do everything humanly possible that it takes to win? And, and that is what I want out of my owner. They're all going to be worth. Look, Sam Walton might, might buy the Denver Broncos. He's worth whatever he's worth, $68 billion. Some sum that nobody can even imagine. But the only thing that matters is tell me the kind of owner he's going to be. Tell me what he's going to plow back into the franchise of his own money. Tell me how he's going to support this team being good long-term. And that's all I want to know out of my owner. It's the only yeah. thing I want to know. I want a commitment that, that unlike Dan Snyder, you know, he's not going to bring shame upon the franchise. And he's not going to be a pox upon one of the great franchises in the NFL of our lifetime. It isn't anymore but it was when he bought it. Well, and the problem is to get in, all that matters is are you the high bidder, especially for the Broncos, a team that's being sold through a trust where the only objective is maximize the money that goes to the beneficiaries, which means Rob Walton, if he's putting the most money down, he's getting the team, and if he, even if he's not the best steward for the franchise. It's one of the things that drives me crazy about the NFL. On behalf of all fans, sometimes you get a bad steward who just happened to be the one who paid the most money for the team. Let's go ahead and take a break. We'll recap the week that was in the NFL. And we've got a fun draft coming up. The best all-time coaching feuds inspired by Nick Saban versus Jimbo Fisher. More PFT Live right after this. Coach Saban, I don't know what the hell that was last night. Talk about calling the pedal black. I mean, that gummy. Jimbo, I don't know what you're talking about, all right? That's not how I run my program. 
Oh, man, right. Obtain national titles and five-star recruits from state to shine and see, but not a dime from your pocket, sure. Look, I don't pay these players. I I just scare the living bejesus out of them so they don't go anywhere else. Plus, how else are people supposed to believe that you get these kids that commit to live in College Station? Oh, yeah, right, because I forgot the Tuscaloosa, the Miami Beach, Alabama. It is if I say it is. Look, Coach, you believe whatever you want to believe, but just know that we are coming for that ass again in 2022. Yeah, sure, there's an 8-4 record and appearance on the Outback Bowl. Congrats. That dumb it! Whoa, now, easy there, boys. Can't we all just get along like peas and carrots and mama's chicken pot pie? We are, after all, one big SEC family. Brian, how the hell did you even get on this call? Ho, ho, ho. Joey Molinero, not to be confused with Ed Marinero, with the... The phone call that will never happen between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, because as Fisher said yesterday, we're done. Saban's tried to call him. Fisher's not talking to him. They get together October 8th. It's going to be awesome, and it's already one of the all-time great coaching feuds. So today's draft, Peter King, the all-time best NFL coaching feuds. We'll do a couple of rounds here and then wrap it up after the break. I'll give you first dibs, all-time best coaching feuds. There's never been one like Jerry Glanville, and Sam Weich. All right, so when Sam Weich coached the Cincinnati Bengals in the late 80s, he hated Jerry Glanville, the coach of the division rival Houston Oilers. So it got so bad that in 1989, when the Bengals were up 45 to nothing late in the game and scored, Sam Weich kicked an onside kick The Bengals recovered, scored again. Then they even scored again. They won the game 61-7. to And afterwards, White basically said, I just wish we had more time on the clock so we could have rubbed it in his face a little bit more. That, Mike Florio, is the greatest coaching rivalry in NFL history. Oh, oh, but there are plenty of others that are worthy of consideration. I agree with you completely there. Um, the first one that I'm going to go to is the coaching rivalry, not between coaches of different teams. And I think Buddy Ryan had a rivalry with everyone that he interacted with, whether he was on the other sideline or his own sideline. But Kevin Gilbride, alumnus of the afternoon PFT show, who once got away with an S-bomb on the air somehow, uh, he took a... He took a punch to the face from Buddy Ryan, 1993-ish. That run-and-shoot offense that could score points but not really hold a lead. Buddy Ryan didn't like it. They were both with the Oilers at the time. But Buddy Ryan actually punching him in the face during a game that, even though they worked for the same team, even though they both got paid by Bud Adams, that to me is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of NFL coaches feuding. Uh, oh, there it is. There look, it is. Buddy oh, Ryan. Oh, no, wait, where is it? Oh, oh it's not. Can the we gift. come back and see run. it? The gift, the gift's caught. Oh. Look, here's the, here's the other one that I have to do with Buddy Ryan. And you're right. Uh, you know, you could do Buddy Ryan and Jimmy Johnson. Uh, you, you, you'd do, you'd do Buddy Ryan and almost anybody. But the one that I like the most is Buddy Ryan and Mike Ditka. The reason is. When the Bears won the Super Bowl over the New England Patriots, the defensive players on the team went away from Mike Ditka. The offensive, couple of offensive linemen put Ditka on their shoulders and ran him off the field. But the defensive guys went over to Buddy Ryan. And in the most telling thing ever in the Ryan-Ditka rivalry, the defensive guys picked up Buddy Ryan and put him on their shoulders and marched around in triumph. And so a lot of people have always wondered, man, the 85 Bears were too good to be just a meteor across the NFL landscape. To only have one Super Bowl, the biggest reason they only won one Super Bowl is very simple. That was two teams playing in Chicago. That was a defensive team coached by Buddy Ryan. That was an offensive team coached by Mike Ditka. They hated each other, and they figured, ah, you know, it works. We won the Super Bowl. They won one Super Bowl. 
Well, and Richard Dent had the all-time great quote regarding the Bears of the mid to late 80s. We won a Super Bowl because of Mike Ditka, and we won a Super Bowl because of Mike Ditka. But it was that Ditka-Ryan, that that attitude, that rivalry, and it all fell apart. He went to coach the Eagles. He was never a great head coach, but he was one of the all-time great defensive coordinators and one of the all-time great teams, the 85 Bears. I'll go with an incident that actually is – one of the chapters in my book, Playmakers, I'm not saying that just to gratuitously plug Playmakers, although it's not gratuitous. It is deliberate. It is strategic. It is Jim Schwartz versus Jim Harbaugh, 2011. The moment that spilled over after the 49ers beat the Lions. The 49ers were not regarded as a very good team that year. The Lions got off to a good start. Harbaugh goes over and gives Schwartz a big shove, and then all hell breaks loose. Here comes Schwartz. There's Bob Lang. Jim Schwartz is saying, hold me back, hold me back, hold me back. Please hold me back because Jim Harbaugh will kick my ass. There, um, The full story on how that came to be, why there was friction, what Harbaugh was doing when he pulled up his shirt and exposed his uh, extremely white midsection, that's all laid out in Playmakers. But that moment, I remember, Peter, we were in the room together, 2011, 30 Rock, when that happened at the end of the game and you know we've got all the games on at once and all of a sudden it's like whoa 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 what the hell's going on up there and that became the focal point of the conversation the rest of the day yeah the one thing i'll always remember about that one both of those guys are really really intense jim schwartz always hit it very very well always hit it very well but he was as intense as harbaugh was And just that moment in time when Harbaugh came over to him and was so demonstrative, Schwartz said, I'm not taking this stuff. And he didn't take it. And that was, you're right, Bob Lang, the PR guy at the time for the Niners, now in Philadelphia. I think Bob Lang might have deserved combat pay because without him doing that, I think one of those guys would have slugged the other one. And I was hoping at the time that that was going to happen because as it was unfolding, it was very memorable. Again, get Playmakers to get the whole story, what happened months earlier that provided the foundation and everything that led up to it. Let's take a break. We'll do the final round of our draft when PFT Live continues right after this. All right, not much time left. One more round to go. Peter, give me another great coaching feud. The best coaching feud I remember, other than ones we've talked about, is Sam Weich standing up and taking a microphone at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati when people were throwing stuff on the field and saying, "You don't live in since you don't live in Cleveland, you live in Cincinnati." Sorry, out of time. See you Monday. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.